We appreciate those of you who are visiting with us. We still have some of our own out, and we're delighted to have you and hope you can stay and enjoy our fellowship meal. And of course, we just rejoice mightily with Jeremy, Nikki, and Ryland over the presence of this precious baby in their lives. Just a joy beyond words, and we are, look forward to our fellowship meal and this baby shower with them. Ryland's got a lot of work ahead of him as a big brother now to help teach Blaze all that he has learned, all of these verses and all of this biblical material that he's stored up. So I'm sure he'll help his parents in helping this precious baby that's now a part of their lives. We just rejoice mightily with them. We continue our series of lessons on characteristics of Paul's preaching. 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 to 8 set forth a number of traits that characterize the preaching of this unusual man of God. 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 and following, For yourselves, brethren, nor our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. That's the first trait. His preaching was not in vain. It accomplished its desired end in Thessalonica. This was not always the case. For when we had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, we came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and reasoned with them three Sabbath days out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. A three-week gospel meeting that was, as Paul states, not in vain. It accomplished its desired end. There was a huge number of men who obeyed the gospel, and there was a goodly number of leading women in that city who obeyed the gospel. What a gospel meeting this was. And tragically, we noted that many congregations have stopped having gospel meetings, one reason of which might be that they cannot even get the members of the local congregation to come out to the gospel meeting. And I've mentioned several times over the years that in meetings I've held over the last 10 years in particular, I have certainly seen that to be the case. Great crowd on Sunday, almost nobody on Monday and Tuesday, just the remnant. And the remnant is never very large. And then a better crowd to close the meeting on Wednesday. So many congregations have gotten weary of being discouraged, so they've just ceased having gospel meetings. Oh, that we could have a three-week gospel meeting like they had in Thessalonica. And so many obeyed the gospel. No wonder Paul said, first of all, it was not in vain. Secondly, it was accompanied by persecution. For even after that we had suffered before, as we, as we were shamefully entreated, Suffered, shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Three statements there, denoting the persecution endured at Philippi. He and Silas were beaten unmercifully, placed in stocks in the inner prison. 
treated like criminals. Thus he said, we suffered before, we were shamefully entreated, and we preached the gospel with much contention. And then thirdly, for our exhortation was not of deceit. It was not in vain. It was accompanied by persecution. But it was not of deceit. There was no deception in the preaching of the Apostle Paul. There is the truth. And that's what he preached. Oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth. Galatians 3, 1. And ye shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. John 8, 32. About 45 years ago, I wrote a letter to a man with a Ph.D. in biblical studies who at that time was teaching at one of our so-called Christian universities. I had read where he stated that you cannot prove anything. And you cannot prove, therefore, that there is a God, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that the Bible is the Word of God. I mentioned John 8, 32, and ye shall know the truth. He said that word know did not mean no. I have yet to figure out what that means. I guess that's like the Bill Clinton is. All depends on what is means. All depends on what no means. Well, we will stick with what Christ said about it. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit, 1 Peter 1, verse 22. There is a common philosophy now in the world which says, you have your truth and I have mine. Truth to one is not necessarily truth to another. What one believes to be truth is truth to him. Is that nonsense? That's pure nonsense. Not a little bit of nonsense, that's the whole of nonsense. That just does away, of course, with the truth. Whatever you believe to be true is true to you. That's truth. If you believe it to be truth, then that's truth to you. Truth to one is not necessarily true to another. Your truth and my truth may be different because your thinking is different from mine. That's unadulterated nonsense. I am the way, the truth, the life. Exclusively those belong to Christ. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14 says. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth, John 17, 17. John 14, 26. Jesus said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you are... are uh, that's John 16, 13. 
for those of you visiting with us, I've been preaching for 55 years and I'm struggling with my mind just so you, you know what I'm going through here, uh, my memory. These things have I spoken unto you, but jump back in. Jump out, jump back. Be yet present with you. I bet when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, where he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear. That you will speak of, he will show you things to come. That's John 14, 25, 26. And then John 16, 12, and 13, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. I bet when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Well, you put those two texts together, and you have this truth. It sets forth a twofold office of the Holy Spirit with regard to the apostles. Number one, the Holy Spirit was through miraculous power going to endow them with what I and we all wish we had, a perfect memory. Denominationalism utilizes these passages to talk about themselves. But then they have to do what we do. They have to turn to the Bible and see what God says about any given thing. If we had what the apostles had promised by Christ himself that would be furnished by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, we could all have a perfect memory. We wouldn't have to, we could quote Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. And so Jesus said, uh, I've been present with you and I've, I've taught you many things for three and a half years. But there's no way you can remember all these things. There's no way. You're going to need miraculous help. And so the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to remind you of everything I have said to you for three and one half years. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And not all of what Jesus said is in that. Just enough that the apostles needed and we need in order to uh, have access to those truths that are essential for our spiritual life. And then he said, and he will guide you into all truth. That's Acts of Revelation. And so you put that together and the apostles now are going to have a perfect memory in regard to all the things Jesus taught them during his personal ministry. And not only that, they're going to have all additional truth so that everything we need for our journey from earth to heaven is supplied. And the apostles were able then to remember everything that Jesus taught them and then all these additional truths that would be supplied in order to be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So you put those texts together and then you have John 17, 17, sanctify then through thy truth, thy word is truth. Everything we need for our journey from earth to heaven has been thoroughly revealed. And we can say we can know the truth and the truth will make us free. The Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is just permeated with warnings about deception. One warning after another. In the New Testament, for example, Jesus said, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many, not a few, many shall come in my name and shall deceive many. 
Matthew 24, 4 and 5. Paul said, And I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Romans 16, 16, 17, 18. But though any man preach any other gospel unto you, than that I preach unto you, let him be accursed. The curse of God rests on any man who changes the gospel of Christ and practices deception with regard to the souls of men. And thus he starts off that warning by saying, I, I'm just shocked out of my mind that you have so soon been removed from the gospel that we preach to you to another gospel. But it's not another of the same kind. It's a different kind. And you now have been deceived by a perverted gospel. That's the reason he said, as noted earlier, oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, deceived, misled you? Ye shall not obey the truth. They had been deceived by a perverted gospel. And ye henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Ephesians 4, 14. That's a sad portrait there. Someone lying in wait ready to jump out and pounce on the unsuspecting with a deceptive gospel, a perverted gospel that will doom the soul. 2 Timothy 3, 13, for evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving being deceived and deceiving. They were deceived themselves and they were deceiving others. And Paul said, this is only going to get worse. Deception started in the Garden of Eden. 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14. For Adam was first formed than Eve. But Adam was not deceived. The woman being deceived was in the transgression. Eve was deceived and then Adam just went along with it. That's where it started. Titus 1, 10 and 11, for there are many unruly speakers and preachers, especially those of the Jews. Paul said, we've got to stop their mouths. They are subverting whole households with this deception that they are practicing. Is there anything worse than being deceived and then going on to deceive others with a deceptive, perverted gospel? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2 has this phrase, handling the word of God deceptively. When one quotes from Genesis chapter 1 and then says, those days were long periods of time, millions and millions of years. He's handling the word of God deceptively. 
When one quotes Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church. And as we know, it's the product of the gospel preached and the gospel obeyed, and it became a reality in the world on Pentecost of Acts 2, because that's what occurred. The pure gospel was preached, the pure gospel was obeyed, and the Lord said, I added them to the church. When one reads Matthew 16, 18, and then says, now that church is composed of all these denominational groups. That's handling the God, word of God deceptively. When one quotes John 3, 16, and says all you've got to do is just believe. Ignore everything else the Bible says about salvation and make that statement that's handling the word of God deceptively. When one quotes Ephesians 5, 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, pasoloing, and says that's pasoloing, twicking and plucking on a mechanical instrument. No, it's plucking and twanging on a instrument, but the instrument is specified in the text. Soloing in the heart, making melody, but soloing in the heart. We need to stay with the instrument that inspiration has provided for us. It's the heart and not a piece of machinery. When we tack on a machine and singing and making melody, we're handing the Word of God to Seth. When one quotes Matthew 19, 9, Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another, committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. And says that's not applicable to non-Christians. That is a gross mishandling, deceptive mishandling of the Word of God. The tragedy is most people want to be deceived. The prophets prophesy falsely. Falsely. And the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. Jeremiah 5, verse 31. Is that not an unspeakable tragedy? It is. These prophets were preaching a deceptive message, and the people loved it. That's what they wanted to hear. The solution to this, of course, is to love the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. Not of deceit. And then finally this morning, Paul says, the fourth characteristic, our excitation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness. Paul's preaching did not spring from unclean, impure motives. There's one basic acceptable motive for preaching the gospel, and that's love. It embraces love for God. For thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy mind, all thy strength. Matthew 22, 37. It embraces love for the truth and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And it embraces love for the souls of men. Thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. Matthew 22, 39. That's the only basic acceptable reason for preaching the gospel. Not of uncleanness. That word is often associated with sexual uncleanness. When you read that, it's mentioned often in the New Testament in all of these passages. 
you know well. Let's just remind ourselves of a handful of them to see the context and how it's used. Romans 1, you remember well as it starts out in verse 22 in the course of that unbelievable portrait of evil and the sin of the Gentiles professing themselves to be wise and became fools. Changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man and a virgin four-footed beast and creeping things. And then verse 24 says, And God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And you know what follows? That tragic depiction of homosexuality. That word uncleanness has a strong sexual connotation. Over a few Passages or chapters, Romans 6, verse 19. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. Well, that's where our trouble is, is it not? As we've talked often here at Panama Street, that's the reason the writing prophets were all the time talking about idolatry. Those people loved idols because idols are not going to bring you into account for your sins of the flesh or any other sins. And the premium sin of, of uh, idolatry was adultery, fornication. That was the premium sin. Those people back there love to... Jeremiah uh, uses the expression, every man, it's a horse expression. The neighing of a horse. Every man neighed after his neighbor's wife. They loved idols because idols let them commit adultery and fornication and not have to answer for it. And that was their chief pleasure. Their chief pleasure. They wanted that more than they wanted anything else. That's the reason the prophets are just immersed in... Uh, passages that deal with that. Infirmity of your flesh, look at this, for as ye have yielded your members, that's your members of your physical body, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. Now stop that and start using your physical bodies as servants to righteousness. Well, these to whom Paul was writing were Involving themselves in all kinds of sexual uncleanness. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 21. Unless when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall be well many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness, which they have committed. There are three terms there, and all of them are sexual in nature. Uncleanness, fornication, pornea, which involves all kind of improper, illicit sexual activity. And lasciviousness, the lust of the flesh. Three terms, they all point to the same thing. Galatians chapter 5 the works of the flesh. And look at the first four. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, 
fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. And he winds up with revelings, which has a sexual connotation often to it. Wild parties that sooner or later always get down, start with drinking and end up with fornicating. Works of the flesh in the first four are sexual in nature. This passage, I think I could still quote it, but I want you to turn there so we can uh, read it together. This is a powerful text, and it is a terrifying text. We have utilized it often, 17 to 19. And we're fixing to note, note four descriptive phrases that talk about the messing up of the mind. And then it's going to lead to an unbelievable tragedy. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, number one, in the vanity of their mind. Number two, having the understanding darkened. Psalms 119, we mentioned this in our class in the back, longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses, all but about seven of those verses use some word, term, some term like statutes, law, commandments, precepts, over and over and over again, repetitiously. And this word understanding crops up real often. It has to do with the mind. What keeps the mind safe and preserves the mind? It's the statutes, the laws, the precepts, the commandments, the mind of God. That's what it does it. That's the reason one of those verses says, Thy law have I hid in my heart that I might not what? Sin against thee. That's one of the verses our young kids know as well as we do. It preserves the mind. It keeps the, not the physical heart, but the spiritual mind pumping with unending, thus saith the Lord's, that keeps the mind pure and preserves its spirituality. Having the understanding darkened, when a man gets in that place, he's headed for spiritual ruin. Alienated from the life of God through the ignorance, that's a mental thing, that is in him. Number four, because of the blindness of the heart. Look at those four phrases. All have to do with messing up the mind, the way we think. Now look to what this leads. Who being past Feeling, being past feeling. Um, there are a lot of uh, people that have physical wrecks and so forth, and they lose the feeling in some part of their body. There was a young man we had here, one of the interns at AP, as I remember, and if I'm not mistaken, he did not have, he could not feel pain. Am I correct there? Okay. He could not feel pain. And there are people like that. And uh, he could uh, lay his hand on a desk and raise a hatchet and chop his fingers off. He wouldn't feel a thing. You know, pain is a good thing. Physical pain is a good thing. 
And mental pain is a great thing. It's a great thing. Because it keeps us out of a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. Through being past feeling. It's bad enough not to have phys physical pain. So you don't know when you're hurt. But if you don't have spiritual pain, you don't know when you're hurting. No? You, you, you can't feel anything. It's gone. So what happens to you? You give yourselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Your appetite for sexual things becomes greedy and you just can't wait to involve yourself in it. Boy, that is one scary, terrifying text. Ephesians 5 verse 3, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting. Uh, verse 3, fornication, all uncleanness, covetousness, let it not be once named among you to become the same. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us, how ye ought to walk and please God, so you would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel. That's body. We ought to know how to possess our, our bodies in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother. Stay away from your brother's wife, your neighbor's wife, your sister's husband. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness. These are warnings about the misuse of the body in sexual activity. The Bible's full of it. The premium sin of idolatry, and it's the premium sin of the flesh. Premium sin of the flesh. There are a lot of things that the flesh enjoys, but what goes on in the sexual area is the chief sin. That's the reason it's so prominent, so prevalent. Moral impurity was an inherent characteristic of heathen religions. It was a common practice known as temple prostitution. Those, that's the reason they, they loved idolatry. They'd go to those uh, uh, idolatrous temples. They'd have their little worship ceremony, and then they would uh, consummate uh, the pleasure with uh, having sexual activity with these prostitutes. The point being that, that the heathen could not separate fornication and adultery from religion. It was a part of it. It inherited in it. They couldn't imagine and comprehend a gospel like the gospel of Christ that says, no, mm, you can't do that. Not be a Christian. It's not going to work. They, they had difficulty with that. It was so much a part of their religion, they could not discern religion without it. And oftentimes then those early Christians were accused of being involved in improperly in such physical stuff because they had these assemblies and they talked about 
loving one another and so forth. Pagans couldn't comprehend that. So anytime that kind of an assembly and that kind of terminology is used and people had love and affection for one another, they, they just automatically connected that as something sexual going on there. Paul's preaching was not in any way associated with anything unclean. Pure motives, pure conduct. He was going to so live that nobody could deny his gospel by saying you've been involved in some unclean activity. Great traits of the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Your present never obeyed the gospel. We encourage you by faith to obey this pure gospel that's preached here at Panama Street and all over the brotherhood yet among us by faithful congregations that know nothing but the truth, the truth, the gospel of Christ. By faith, repenting of your sins, confessing Christ, being baptized into Christ. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you've done that and you need the prayers of the church for any wrongdoing or just for your encouragement, we hope you'll come while we stand and sing. A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord, a wonderful Savior to me. He hides my soul in the cleft of the rock where ribs of pleasure I see. He hides my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hides my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand and covers me there with his hand. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. He taketh my burden away. He holdeth me up and I shall not be moved. He giveth me strength as my day. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hides my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand and covers me there with his hand. When clothed in his brightness, transported I ride to meet him in clouds of the sky. His perfect salvation, his wonderful love, I'll shine with the millions on high. He hides my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hides my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand and covers me there with his hand. Well, thank everyone for being here this morning, especially those who are visiting. You are certainly our honored guest. And we have a luncheon today. We want to make sure that you are invited to that. Please stay around if you can. We'll have our uh, closing song, then a closing prayer. Number 54, number 54. Again, this evening, we'll have services. Uh, we have the, we, are we having the 5 and 5.30 tonight or anyone know? Okay, we, we'll have uh, worship only tonight at 6 o'clock. 
Hope you can come back for that. Number 54, God be with you. We'll sing the first verse only. Then we'll be led in our closing prayer. God be with you till we meet again. By his counsels, God uphold you with his sheep that surely fold you. God be with you till we meet again. Till we meet, till we meet, till we meet at Jesus' feet. Till we meet, till we meet, God be with you till we meet again.